This time I invite you to remain standing as we read our scripture together. It comes from the Gospel of Luke chapter 4. Let's read that together. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Does anyone know who wrote the book of Romans? You can say it out loud. Paul. I used to think that too. (laughs) Fortunately, a few weeks ago, Pastor John and Pastor Mark enlightened me about who actually wrote it. Um, I didn't know this, but it was actually a guy named Tertius. Is anyone familiar with Tertius? So this is actually written in... In um, Romans, it says, I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. So do you know who he is? He's the guy who wrote down the words that Paul said. So so Paul really wrote it. (laughs) But Tertius wrote it. (laughs) But I wonder, what if Paul really didn't write the book of Romans? You know, this is one of, the, one of the books of the Bible that has really shaped what Christians believe. Uh, whenever we came to the Reformation, it was uh, one of the books that really shaped the way that Martin Luther and other reformers um, understood. It had a profound effect on the life of John Wesley, the founder of Methodism. What if, what if the book of Romans was actually written by somebody besides Paul? If it said it was written by Paul, but, but was actually written by someone else, what impact would that have? What impact would that have on, on your faith if, if you're a Christian? What would that do to the reliability of the scriptures? How would we live with that? And that's the question that we're looking at this morning. Uh, well, well, can we trust the New Testament? Can we trust that what it says is reliable? And, and if there are questions, and, and there are questions about the Bible, if there are questions that are difficult, does, does that basically mean that we can't trust anything that it says? And, and if that's true, what, what does that do to our faith? So those are the questions we're asking. Is the New Testament reliable? If not, where does that leave Christian faith? My name is Brandon Blackson. I'm the associate pastor here, and we're in week four, the, our final week of the sermon series that we've been going through, Making Sense of the Bible. And we've been asking some of the really difficult questions of the Bible, and those, are, those, those topics that we chose are actually um, based on feedback that we've received from you. This, uh, this series came about whenever um, in June we were um, planning sermons for the rest of the year and, and asked, you know, what are the things that you want to hear about? And one of the things that you shared was, well, actually a pretty long list of difficult questions about the Bible. 
And so that's what we've been going through. And um, we start out by asking, what does it mean to say the word? What does it mean to say the Bible is inspired? What is the word of God? After that, we looked at uh, violence in God in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Last week, we looked at um, how do we interpret verses about homosexuality in the Bible. So, so we've really chosen the easy questions and uh, left off the uh, the difficult ones. And, and this week, we're just asking, you know, is the New Testament reliable? So again, um, you know, just uh, just the easy stuff. But uh, that's that's why I got to do it because I could handle it. But this week's a little bit different. This, this topic isn't, you know, doesn't lend itself to the kind of sermon we normally preach where we look deeply at, at one or two um, scripture texts. We're really looking broadly. And so, so there are some elements to this that are a little bit more of uh, kind of like a lecture, but I think it's important information. And uh, so that's what I'll be sharing with you this morning. And uh, before we start, though, I, before we really get into it, uh, one of the things that we've been looking at every week is, is kind of a principle that undergirds the way that we read scripture here. And it comes from a disciple Bible study, which we teach every year, which we're uh, four weeks into now and uh, having a great time. Um, but this is what it says. The word of God is Jesus Christ. And the words of the Bible tell us about that word. Therefore, when we study the words of the Bible, we always look behind, in, and through those words for God's word, Jesus Christ. And so whenever we're looking at, at the scriptures and especially those hard passages, the, the lens that we're looking at them through is through Jesus through the things that he said, through the things that he did, through the things that we know about him. And so um, that's really where I hope that we land today. We'll be looking at the reliability of the New Testament, but, but ultimately it comes down to him and that he's trustworthy and that the New Testament is the guide that points us to him. So, so that's where we're going and uh, now let's start getting there. So we, um, we hear sometimes objections about the reliability and authority of the New Testament. And, and so I just want to kind of walk through some of those and share with you some of the historical background. These are things that we learn in seminary, and um, I'll speak only for myself, but they're things that I don't talk about a lot uh, because really they're, they're interesting, but they don't necessarily help us know how to live out our faith. And so I don't preach about them a lot. I don't mention them a lot uh, whenever I'm preaching. You know, I had a, a seminary professor who, who told me in one of his classes, you know, the people in your churches will be glad that you know this, but you don't need to tell them everything that you learn. And so I try to abide by that, but I think these are some important things for us to know. So, so one of the questions that we hear sometimes is, is when was the New Testament created? And, and some people will claim that it, that it didn't come about until centuries after Jesus' life and death. Um, that is actually centuries later that the New Testament came about. And so how can we trust it if, you know, it, it was centuries later? And, and specifically, um, around 350 years is sometimes an objection that is raised. And, and in a very strict sense, that's true. Um, the New Testament wasn't formally created until um, the year three, um, 397. And so there's a sense in which that's true. I mean, that's a long time. Jesus died around the year 30. Um, he was born around the year 4, 4 B.C., uh, before Christ. We uh, didn't quite get the dating right whenever it was created in the, in the 6th century, but, uh, you know, that's, that's pretty good. That's better than I could have done. But, but so, so that's, you know, 350 years later that, w- that we're formalizing the New Testament. So that's, uh, you know, how, how many, that's longer than our, our country has existed. That's, that's a long time. And so if that's true, that's a concern. And although it is true in a sense, really, we can look back and see that that the writings in the New Testament came about within a generation of Jesus' life. 
And so the earliest writings in the New Testament are actually those of Paul. That was surprising to me whenever I learned that. They're not the Gospels, but the letters that Paul wrote are the earliest writings that we have in the New Testament. And, and probably those came about in the years kind of 50 to 60. Paul died around 65, and so, uh, so he stopped writing at that point. But uh, probably the earliest um, was 1 Thessalonians, written, um, written around 50, maybe a few years before that. Um, some scholars will date Galatians as earlier, but those are really probably one and two of the oldest books that we have in the Bible. So whenever you read those, you're actually reading the earliest words that, that we have recorded about Jesus. And, and so as Paul was going around, he, he was ministering to churches, and he would write letters to them, encouraging them. And uh, those letters were preserved, and then they were passed around and copied, and, and they form uh, really the majority of what's the New Testament today. And so those, that was only 20 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And, uh, and so is that the same as 350? No. I mean, that's within a generation. There were people living who were there. Uh, Paul was alive at that time, but uh, as best we know, he wasn't present for any of that. Jesus didn't appear to him until after his resurrection. Um, but, but that's certainly close enough to be a reliable witness. The Gospels came not too long after that, somewhere around 60 to 90 A.D., and uh, does anyone know, so this one's not a trick question, does anyone know which was the first gospel to be written? Mark, right? At, at least most scholars say so. Of course, there's always someone, you know, who says it was something else, but, but scholars believe that Mark was the earliest written somewhere around 60, uh, maybe the mid-60s. Some would place it a little bit earlier, but somewhere around there is when Mark was written. So within 30 years still, of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And uh, the, the other Gospels came after that, and actually Matthew and Luke um, used Mark as a source most likely. Uh, you can find passages there that are almost word for word the same, and so they're drawing on Mark, but they came later, um, maybe during the 70s. And then John usually is, is regarded as the last, although that's debated like all of these. One of the things that I ran into whenever I was preparing this is no one dates them the same. So, so that's why we're doing 60 to 90. It's nice, broad, and comfortable within 30 years, but, but that's about how that went. And probably part of the reason for that is, you know, whenever Jesus f- was first alive after his resurrection, they didn't need to write it down because the people who witnessed it were there. We see really early on in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, after Pentecost, uh, D- Peter, Peter shared the good news with the people of Jerusalem, and do you know how he did it? He didn't write, write an article. He didn't write a bi- biography. He preached. He taught. And so the, the stories of Jesus, the good news, came about by people teaching and preaching and telling one another stories. And, and eventually, it, it, they realized that they needed to start writing them down. I, I don't know about you, but um, in my family, you know, there are certain people who, who know the family history. And, and uh, then, you know, as they start to age, you think, you know, they really know some stories that no one else knows. And, and if we don't write those down, then, then we're not going to know them either. And so I think that's maybe what was happening as the apostles uh, started to... to um, to reach the end of their lives that they realized we really need to start writing this down and preserving it. And, and so there were some earlier accounts that uh, the gospel writers relied upon. We see that in Luke. He talks about the other accounts that were written, and, and he investigates them carefully and, and creates his own orderly account. And uh, then we have the gospels, the accounts of, of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, the good news of his life. And so these were writings that were originally passed around. Uh, initially, Paul's letters, you know, were just letters to churches, and uh, Paul probably would have been scandalized at the thought of his own writings becoming the Bible. Um, but, but eventually, those started to have more authority. They were regarded with more authority, and, and eventually um, were started to be treated with the same level of respect and authority as what to the early Christians was the Bible, the, what we call the Old Testament. And so this happens really quickly in the, in the first and second century. They begin to regard these things as um, as 
Scripture, and, and we even see this as early as the writing of Second Peter. And so uh, that comes about, it says, so also our beloved brother Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given him. So, so he's talking about the letters of Paul there. Speaking of this as he does in all of his letters, there are th- some things in them hard to understand, and I really appreciate that line because there are still things that are hard for me to understand. There's some things hard to understand which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do to the other scriptures. And, and so that's, not, that's an important word that, that already that's being regarded as scripture. Um, Second Peter and Revelation are generally regarded as among the last books of the New Testament to be written. Some people um, will place that in the late first century. Some would even say early second century, but sometime later in that time period. And so um, in, in, at this point in the development, they're, um, they're already regarding those as scripture. And so that's happening, you know, within 75 years of, of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then eventually they canonized it. They formed a canon, which means standard. That's basically what, what we refer to as the list of all the books of the Bible, the, the canon. And uh, that happens by the end of the late 4th century. And the way that they do that, again, this is something that's questioned sometimes, you know, if 400 years later almost, all these people just decided which books would go into the Bible. And, you know, they had an agenda and they picked ones that they liked and the ones that they didn't like, they left out. And uh, that's, that's really an oversimplification and, and actually just not really true. There, are, there were standards that were used whenever they were making those decisions. Three primary criteria that they used to determine what, which writings were accepted. And so the first of those they referred to as Catholicity. Catholicity. So um, if you were in here whenever we said the uh, Apostles' Creed, you saw on the screen that it said uh, Catholic and then in parentheses universal. And so were these writings universal? Um, you know, if, if, if this, we're looking at the Gospel of Mark, is it, just, um, is it just one church over here in Syria that's using it and no one else has heard of it? Or is it broadly used? And so the ones that they accepted were the ones that the church had basically already accepted by, by their use of them, by regarding them as authoritative. Were they universal in the church's acceptance of them? The second one was apostolicity. Apostolicity. So did it derive from the apostles? Did it have a connection to the original witnesses of Jesus' life and resurrection? And so whenever you look at the Gospels, uh, whenever you look at Matthew, that one was attributed to um, the disciple Matthew. Mark was believed to be um, Peter's interpreter whenever he was in Rome, and so he had direct connection to Peter, um, to, um, you know, the chief disciple and apostle. And um, Luke was a traveling companion of Paul, even if you read the, the book of the Acts of the Apostles, um, you notice that sometimes he drifts into first person. He talks about Paul and his companions, and then it's talking about we, what we did whenever we were traveling. And so it was one of his companions in the, as well. And then the Gospel of John attributed to, um, to the disciple John. And so they had to have some connection. It couldn't just be something that somebody wrote a century later, um, you know, with three degrees or five or seven degrees of separation I know you're thinking of Kevin Bacon, but that's not where we're going. (laughs) But they had to have a direct connection to the original eyewitnesses. And then finally, the last one was orthodoxy, was orthodoxy, uh, the consistency with the teaching and preaching that had been passed down from the apostles. And so if something, you know, was was teaching something totally contrary to everything else that, that the church believed, then that would be regarded with suspicion because it was counter to what was understood of basically to the teaching that had been handed down from the beginning. And so these three um, criteria were what were used to, to select the books that we have now in the New Testament. In some ways, this was almost a, an explanation of decisions that 
that have been made earlier because really um, by the early first and second centuries it, it wasn't formally accepted or, or set until the fourth century but it's practically settled in the first and second centuries by that first criterion by its catholicity um, because the vast majority of the books of the, of the new testament were accepted broadly by the church far before the council sat down to actually formally make that decision and so finally, uh, this was, uh, we first see the list of the New Testament books that we have today in a letter from um, Al Athanasius of Alexandria, a bishop in the fourth century, um, in a, a letter that he wrote in 367, lists the books of the New Testament as we have them. The church formally adopted that at a couple of different councils, um, one in Rome in, in 381, and then one in Carthage in North Africa in 397. And so, so was the New Testament created in, in the late fourth century, 350 years later? after all of that happened? Yes, um, in, in a sense. But, it, but it, didn't just, it wasn't created out of thin air. It didn't just all of a sudden happen just because someone made it up. It, it was drawn on, on the, the eyewitness accounts and had been developed and, uh, over what was happening in the lives of the church. And, and so they, they didn't just create it, they formalized it, something that had already been established for hundreds of years before that. And so can we trust that process? I think so. I think that's reliable. We can trace those writings back to the apostles, to the people who witnessed the things that Jesus taught. So, so that's, that's how the Bible, the New Testament as we have it, came into, into being. Um, af after that, another objection that we hear sometimes, though, is was the New Testament edited after it was written? Did something happen to the New Testament? Did, did somebody edit it and make a bunch of stuff up and, and, you know, just make it say the things that they wanted it to? And, uh, you know, the, the answer to this is, well, it was edited, kind of. And so there are actually, if you look, there are many uh, textual variants in the New Testament manuscripts. There, there are a lot of places where uh, one manuscript doesn't quite, disagree, doesn't quite agree with another one. And there's a wide range of, of what those differences look like. And some of them are, are small and innocuous, like, um, like just, you know, copying error. Now, in the first century, they couldn't go to, to FedEx Kinko's to copy a bunch of stuff. They had to do all of that by hand. Couldn't just hit uh, Control-P or Command-P if you use a Mac. Um, you couldn't just print that way. They had to hand copy everything. And so they, they would hand write those and copy those down. And, and, you know, sometimes people would skip a letter or they'd skip a word. Or sometimes, you, you know, when you're reading, you, you get to the end of the line and, and you skip one. You skip two lines instead of just going to the next one. So sometimes that happens. And that really accounts for the majority of, of the differences that we have. But occasionally there are differences that are more significant. Sometimes it ranges even to stories that are added or omitted. And, and so we see those, and uh, sometimes those are troubling. But, but one significant one comes in the Gospel of John in, in chapter 8. And so if you, uh, this, I'm not the best at cropping uh, pictures, but this is what my Bible looks like whenever I open up to John chapter 8. And the text at the top, it's kind of small, but it says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7.53 to 8.11. And so that, that story, which is the story of the woman who was caught in adultery and she's brought by religious leaders to Jesus who says, you know, we caught her in the act of adultery. The, the scripture says that she should be stoned and, and they're all ready and they're carrying their stones and they say, what, should, what do you say that we should do? And what does Jesus say? Let the one among you who is without sin cast the first stone. And, and apparently that's not in the oldest manuscripts that we have. At some point, that got added. 
And uh, admittedly, that, that bothers me a little bit, especially because it's a story that I really like and that I, and I understand. Like, I wish it would say that about, uh, above the parts of the New Testament that I didn't like or that are really hard, but uh, no such luck. That's not always how it works. But, but at some point, this got added in. And so at what point, uh, I'm sure scholars have good answers for that and why it got added in, we don't know. Maybe it was part of the oral tradition that, uh, that predated the writing of the Gospels and someone knew this story about Jesus and wanted to make sure that it got in. Maybe there was something else. But, you know, I, I look at this scripture and, and I love it, but, but I think about if, if we took it out, does it take away anything about Jesus that, that is central to who he is? Not to me. And if we add it in, does it add anything that, that is contrary to the character of Jesus as we know him? I mean, no, that's, that's really a portrait of the Jesus that we see in the New Testament. That's how I would expect him to act in, in that situation. Of course, we've got to be careful there. Like, Jesus always loves to, to upset our expectations. But whenever I look at, at challenges like this, I can see, you know, if, if this part was not in the New Testament or if that was an addition, which it appears to be, does that fundally, fundamentally change my faith? No, it doesn't. And whenever we look at, at these manuscript differences, these, these challenges, um, some of them are troubling, but none affects the core message of the New Testament about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, about his life among us so that we might have life in his name. None of it challenges that part of it. And so whenever we're looking at, at questions like this about differences in, in ancient manuscripts, and, and you can imagine how this goes, you know, if somebody's making a copy of the Gospel of John and makes a mistake, and then somebody else makes five copies based on that, how it can really balloon out and, and uh, have a significant effect just because you forgot a letter. But, but whenever we look at those, if, if that's troubling, sometimes that comes back to how we understand what it means for the Bible to be inspired, and if we believe that God wrote every word of the Bible, essentially, that God spoke it word for word to the apostles and they wrote it down exactly, then that's really troubling. That's a way of thinking about inspiration that's known as verbal plenary inspiration, that God verbally dictated it and, and in whole um, as we have it. But if we, have a, if we can see the Bible as a more human document, inspired by God, but uh, also working through humans who are fallible, then, then we can still make sense of that. We can still accept it as the, as the inspired word of God. Because whenever I think back, you know, it, it's not just the words that were actually written down that were inspired, I don't think. Because whenever they were writing those things down, the, the events that they're recording, do you think those were inspired by God? Do you think the Holy Spirit was working at that time? Absolutely, God was at work. And whenever they were writing those down and recording those things, I believe absolutely God was at work speaking to them as they were, make, as they were recording those things. But then as, as they were translated, do you, think, do you think God stops there? Or does God continue as the church is discerning, is this the gospel as we understand it? Is this part of, should we regard this as part of the canon? Because it, it's, does it fit with what we believe? Do you think God was at work in that? And, and whenever Bibles are translated into other languages, do you think God is at work there? And we better hope so. Those of us who can't read Greek, I know the alphabet in a few words, and, and that's about it. And so I, I believe that God is at work, that God is working as people are working on the word, as, as people are translating the Bible that I read in English, that God is at work. And so if we understand inspiration broadly, uh, where God is at work in the events that are described, in their recording, in their transcribing, in their translating, and even in their interpreting, which is our prayer every week as, as we're preparing these messages, that God would speak, not just that, that we would read words on a page, but the Holy Spirit would speak to us, 
then is that a problem? I don't think so. There are a few things that would be a little bit easier, you know, if we just had a, a complete manuscript that we knew with 100% certainty was, uh, was uh, exactly as it was originally written, but, but that's not what we have. And God works through that. Just as we see throughout the scripture that God works through, through people who are fallible. And so can we trust that? Can we trust those words? Um, you know, we can trust that, that this, the New Testament, the core message of it is, is, is reliable. Because none of those errors, whatever they are, whether it was spelling or, or a story of, of a woman who was caught in adultery, none of those affects what, the core of what it says about who Jesus is. All right, so the next question, is the New Testament inconsistent? So, so we've looked at how it came about, we've looked at how we treat the actual text of the New Testament, but then whenever we read it, is it inconsistent? Are there contradictions? Are there things that don't add up? And, uh, you know, if we read carefully, if you've been through Disciple Bible Study and sat through that, you know that there are some places that don't really match up. There are some things in the New Testament that, that happen one way in John and, and a different way in, in Matthew and, and one way in Mark and a different way in Luke, things that don't quite match up. And, uh, you know, sometimes something is said one way in one place and, and another way in someplace else. Sometimes there are things that are in different orders. If you look at whenever Jesus went into the temple and drove out the money changers and the people who had taken that, uh, who had turned it into a marketplace, that's one of the first things that Jesus does in his ministry in the Gospel of John. It's one of the last things in his ministry in, in the other three Gospels. And, and so what do we do with that? How do, how do we handle differences like that? One place that, that we can see this clearly, I think, is, is with the empty tomb. The gospel writers disagree about who was at the tomb at Jesus' resurrection. And, you know, that's kind of an important story. It's right at the center of what we believe. And, and so who was there? And just think about that. Who do you remember being there um, at that moment? This is what Mark says. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. So, so we had three women there. We had Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and, and Salome. Okay, that's clear enough. What does Matthew say? After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So where's Salome in that one? It's possible that Salome was there and Matthew just decided not, not to include her. But that would be an interesting decision since he had Mark in front of him and, uh, and decided not to mention her. So, so what do we do with that? Let's look and see what, what Luke says. Now it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told this to the apostles. And so those were the, the women who, who were there. And uh, okay, where did Joanna come from? Like, was she hiding in a bush and Luke's the only one who, who knows that... We're at least covered with Salome, I mean, and the other women is, is a nice kind of blanket thing. So, okay, let's look at John. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. So, so in this one, we only have Mary Magdalene there. Uh, everyone else was, uh, was apparently slept in that Sunday morning. So, so what do we do with that? This is important. But do you notice what's the same? And I know we didn't read all the verses, but do you know what's the same in every account? The tomb is empty. That's exactly right. What is most important about the Easter morning story? The tomb is empty. That's the source of our faith. It's not about who is there. It's important that someone was there, that someone witnessed it, right? And, uh, and thank God for Mary Magdalene. We've got broad agreement that she was there. But does it really matter if we're not clear on, on who exactly was there? I don't know that it does. 
Because, you know, if this was written down 30 to 60 years after the events that, that are here, uh, I just think about whenever, whenever we think back, does anyone, can anyone remember something that happened 30 years ago? If you do, I, I remember a few things, not very many. Uh, they're more like impressions than memories. But, but do you know, can you name everybody who was there if you think about that kind of event? Do you know what time of day it was whenever that happened? There are some things that we're going to get wrong. But, but whenever you tell us those stories of something that happened 30 years ago, can, can we trust that what you say is reliable? We may not get every single detail right, but can you remember the core of the story? I think so. I hope so, or else I've, you know, every story that my grandpa's ever told me is wrong. But yeah, those are trustworthy. And if we're getting the core of what really matters, then it doesn't really matter to me if, if it was actually at noon and I heard that it was at 9 a.m. or 9 p.m. And, and if I heard that Mary, the mother of James, was there, and, or maybe she wasn't, and uh, Joanna was there or, or was hiding or, or whatever. Because what matters most is that the tomb was empty. They agree on that because that is what the source of our faith is. And so whenever we, we look at all of these things, whenever we understand the, the New Testament as a book that was inspired by God but, but also um, cared for, written, and transcribed, and, and accepted by humans, we can recognize that, that this is something that God has given to us. And even if it's every detail is not consistent in the way that we think of it now, that it's still a trustworthy, reliable witness because it agrees about the things that matter most about the good news of Jesus Christ for every person, that he rose from the dead to give us all life, that all the world would be saved. And so whenever we're thinking about this, I think one of the most important questions is not just how, but why was the New Testament written? I mean, whenever we think about this, we can get all the details right, but if we don't get the why, then, then we really miss it. And so the Bible has a few things to say about that as well. This is what, what John's gospel says. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And one of the things that we see there clearly is they had to make decisions about what to include. And, uh, you know, maybe this is the, the, whenever we go back to the story of the woman in the temple, you know, maybe that was a story that John told to the people around the campfire but didn't bother to write down. And one of them was like, he forgot this, I got it, don't worry. But, but they had to make decisions. What do we include? We can't include everything. And so there are many other things that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing, you may have life in his name. The authors of the Bible weren't neutral. They weren't just compiling a historical account of things that happened so that people could read it and there would be a record of it into perpetuity. They were writing with a definite agenda so that you would believe, so that we would know that Jesus is the Christ, so that we would know what he did and how that affects us and how we can be a part of it, and so that we can have life of, in his name. The Gospels and the rest of the New Testament aren't written as biographies, particularly the Gospels aren't histories, biographies, but they're accounts of the good news. They're accounts of good news. They're telling us what happened and why it matters so that we might believe as well. Paul talks about this as well in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a, another book that was written maybe 25 years after, after Jesus' death and resurrection. Paul says, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, 
and that he was buried, and that on the third day, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Paul wrote this while Peter was still alive. Like Peter could have said, nope, that's not right. Jesus didn't appear to me, and he didn't. He could have, any of those that he was talking about, many of the disciples were still alive at that point and could have contradicted him. But he gave this account of what had happened, what had been passed on to him, what he had received from Jesus whenever Jesus appeared to him so that others might believe and have life. He says, Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. And that appearance, that experience that Paul had changed everything to him. It changed everything for him. His life was not the same after that. And Jesus continues to do that for those of us who read about him in the New Testament today. The reason Christianity exists is because Jesus rose from the dead so that the world may have life in his name. The reason that we have a New Testament that that we are here today is because of that pivotal event that changed everything. Whenever we're talking about the New Testament, it, it's really important. We take the Bible really seriously here. We offer Disciple Bible Study every year, and, and uh, the, in case you didn't hear us talking about it for the last month or two, that's 24 weeks of, of really studying the Scriptures. We really believe in that, and, and if you're going to be in leadership at this church, that's a prerequisite because we believe that people need to know the Bible if they're going to lead a biblical church. Every morning, whenever we start worship, we talk about, we share together Acts 2.42. And what did the apostles devote them to? The apostles' teaching. And what that means for us is that we devote ourselves to the scriptures, to what the apostles taught and what was recorded, what they tell us about Jesus. We, we take that really seriously, but we also know that the foundation of our faith is not a book, but a person, Jesus Christ. That what our faith, that what, the value of the Bible is, is not that, that it's the sole authority, that it's what we, uh, okay, so it is kind of the sole authority, that's not what I meant to say. But the value of it is not that it has intrinsic power, but that it points to one who does. The value of the Bible comes from the one that it points to, and it's valuable to us because of who it connects us to, to Jesus Christ, the one who appeared to Paul and totally changed his life the one who, who changed him from someone who persecuted the church to, to its biggest proponent, to the one who spread Christianity throughout the Mediterranean world and whose, world, whose words we still read today. The scriptures are something that I studied but before I came here. I was preaching every week. I was preaching on the Bible 45 to 50 weeks out of the year. I spent four years in undergraduate studying this book. I spent three years in seminary and continue to wrestle with it, to, to teach it, to preach from it. I've, I've given my life to his teachings, because I follow the one who it points to, because I follow Jesus who offers his life in his name, and that life continues to change my life, it continues to change the world, and I know that it continues to change lives in this congregation in Edmond and and all over the world through what God is doing. So is the New Testament reliable? Absolutely. I'm betting my life on it. I'm betting my soul on it. I believe it because I believe in Jesus because he changed everything for me. So as we live this out this week, I want to give you a couple of action steps. First, I want you to choose a gospel. As we're looking toward the one that the Bible points us to, I want each of us to read about him. And so I want you to choose a gospel and start reading it daily until you finish. Read it all the way through and read daily because whenever we come to know the one to whom the gospels point, it, it changes us. 
And so read through that. You might read two chapters a day. You might read two verses a day at, at whatever pace you go. Spend time getting to know the one to whom the New Testament points. And then the New Testament exists not just so that we have a record of what happened, but so that we might follow him. And so I want to challenge you to choose to follow the one to whom the New Testament points. Choose to follow Jesus. Maybe that's a decision that you've made a long time ago, but it's one that requires each of us to decide again every day whenever we get up that we're going to continue following him, that we're going to continue to say yes. Maybe that's a decision that you've never made, and I just want to challenge you that as you're looking through the New Testament, as you're experiencing him in worship, that, that you'd say yes to him and that you would follow him. Because just as he changed everything for Paul, just as he gave life to John the Apostle, just as he continues to change lives throughout the world, he'll change yours as well. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you speak to us. That through, through means that we understand and means that we don't, you've given us a book that, that directs us to you, that shows us how to live, that shows us who you are, and that teaches us that you love us more than we can even begin to comprehend. So God, I pray that, that you would continue to speak to us, that you would inspire us, and that you would draw us closer to you and closer to your son, the one who lived and died and rose for us. And we ask this all in his name and pray together the words that he taught us, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. In just a few moments, we'll take up this morning's offerings. The, the gifts that you offer enable us to continue to allow God